Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. To Burnaby South, thank you for trusting me to be your member of parliament. Thank you. I want to promise you something. I will be your champion. I will be your champion. I will take each and every one of you with me to Ottawa, where I'll fight with for you in the House of Commons. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. Welcome back to another podcast. That's the voice of Jagmeet Singh, the federal leader of the NDP. He wins big in Burnaby South, Rob, and he's finally got a seat in the House of Commons. Long time coming. Guy's been the NDP leader for over a year, getting close to a year and a half. And he's finally got a seat in the House of Commons. I think he can turn things around. The NDP do, federally doing pretty badly in the polls. Yeah, well, he's got a shot here. I mean, that that's a big victory for him. Now he's got a seat in the House of Commons. I mean, they, the NDP beat uh, the Liberals, Richard T. Lee, the candidate there, by 13 points. So yep. pretty good, you know, a, a nice decisive victory for Jagmeet Singh. Uh, it raises some questions, you know, about, I guess, the positions of all of the parties as we head closer to the federal election what do we make from, as we sift through the tea leaves on this by-election, what do we make from a, what, almost 10% um, popular vote uh, for the the Maxime Bernier uh, party? And what does that mean for the Conservatives? Like, when you put it all in... In its totality, Smitty, who do you think won and lost, uh, and what do we what do we make from what we see? Well, there? it's it's obviously a great win for Singh, who really needed this badly. I mean, I think his job was on the line there. If he had lost this by election, uh, I think he would have been out as NDP leader. Now he had been asked in the run up to this, "What if you lose? Will you hang on as leader?" And he's, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'll hang on as leader." Realistically, no. I think no. he would have been done. You, you and, don't hang on as leader in the NDP. You get knifed in the face. And then oh, yeah. He go. would have been gone. He would have yeah. been gonzo. In fact, I've been talking to some federal NDP insiders in the run-up to this thing saying that, oh, no, he can't he can't hang around. Not when the party's at polling so dismally bad in the polls. There's not like 16% in the polls or something. It's terrible. They're having a lot of trouble raising money. I mean, the party is in bad shape here right now, and, and they stand – if the polls – go this way right up until the election eight months from now they could lose a lot of seats so uh, there were some people thinking if he lost this they'd they'd get rid of him Uh, but he wins he wins comfortably he won he actually got uh, he did perform better in that riding than Kennedy Stewart did Mm -hmm. who was the former NDP MP for the riding of course now is the mayor of Vancouver so I think he did really really well and 
I, you know, I, I think the reason that he did well was the NDP threw the kitchen sink at this thing. I think he probably knocked on every door in the riding. If you talk to his people, a lot of people say, yeah, we know he's he's done. Uh, we're doing badly in the polls. He's stumbled over a few issues. He's he's not lighting the world on fire in his, with his speaking style. But he's a nice guy. And if you uh, get to know him and, and talk to him, he's got a warm, personal kind of touch. And people respond to that. So maybe that helped him in the riding. And, of course, the liberals had their own troubles. Well, it, it, ma- well. it makes me wonder about British Columbia, battleground BC for the next federal election and what that means for the, the liberals. I mean, Justin Trudeau made big gains here in BC. This was supposed to be, you know, one of his key strongholds when it comes to being reelected. They have 18 seats here, but they're showing in this by-election their victory in, in Quebec, picking up the NDP's uh, seat, the former seat of leader Tom Mulcair. Um, it makes you wonder if perhaps the Liberals, the federal Liberals, see more fertile gains to be made at the NDP's expense in Quebec than they do yeah. in British Columbia, where yeah. they're stuck wrestling with issues like the pipeline, uh, environmental protection, First Nations reconciliation, big issues that Trudeau, uh, Liberal leader and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, sounded so encouraging about in the last election, and he's just eaten dirt on those files ever since. And there's a lot of people angry in British Columbia. It makes me kind of wonder whether BC is important for the future of Justin Trudeau and the federal liberals as we thought it was after the last election, or whether this is a place where the NDP might hope to make a little bit of ground at the liberals' expense. Well, uh, Trudeau mania rolled through British Columbia in that last federal election four years ago, and they picked up a ton of seats and did and did really, really well. Uh, in this by-election, though, the liberal candidate there, Richard Lee, went down, I think, Eight points? Eight points in the riding? Yeah. So that makes you wonder if the bloom is off the Trudeau rose there a little bit in, in British Columbia, if the Trudeau mania has kind of run its course, and that's an indicator that maybe the Liberals lose some of those seats that they picked up in, in British Columbia in the, in, the, in the last election. Then again, the Liberals had a lot of bad luck in this, uh, in this campaign in a lot of ways because, remember, they had to switch candidates halfway through after right. Karen Wang um, uh, stepped aside over social media posts. Arguably, they had a better candidate with Richard Lee, who was a former three-term liberal MLA who knows how to win elections, but still didn't perform well. And then, of course, this SNC-Lavalin scandal b- blows up in the middle of the campaign as well. So they had a lot of you know tough sledding there. The NDP, on the other hand, threw the kitchen sink at this thing. I mean, they, they, it was all full-court press to get Singh to win. They had a lot of labor support. You had the provincial NDP machine helping them out. There were a lot of liberal yep. uh, NDP MLAs went over there to help out. So maybe it's an indicator that the liberals have gone down a bit. Singh, great win for him, but I think he's still got a lot of trouble. I mean, if you take a look at where the, the NDP are in the polls nationally, really bad. They can't raise money. And here's another one to watch out for. Now that he won, and he's the leader going into another election, into the next election, does he lose some of his key MPs who decide this is the time to take a timeout and maybe I'm not going to run again. And one guy I'm thinking of in particular in British Columbia is Nathan Cullen mm-hmm. from northern British Columbia who is arguably the best MP they got in that whole caucus. And some people actually think that he should he'd be, actually be a better leader of the party than Singh. I talked to some people who were kind of hoping that Singh would lose this by-election so that Nathan Cullen would step in as the leader. And now, when you ask Cullen, are you going to run again, he's hedging. He's saying he might not run. This is bad. This is bad for, uh, for, uh, 
for Singh if he starts losing some people now. What do you think Nathan Cullen does? I mean, every time we have a little blip here provincially, the NDP, you know, Nathan Cullen's name always comes up. Is he, yeah. he going to come take over the provincial party, the next premier, a uh, big cabinet minister? Could he be a guy who gets lured into the, the provincial arena, perhaps? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he's. I think he's still got a big future ahead of him. I think he's a, a very talented MP, so we'll see what happens there. But here's the silver lining, I think, for the NDP federally is this is the politics in this country are crazy right now. Like it's it's a it's a crapshoot really this election in a lot of ways. I mean, Trudeau's sort of trending down because of this SNC Lavalin scandal. You've got this People's Party that you mentioned from Maxime Bernier stealing votes from the potentially from the Conservatives. They got ten percent of the vote in, in Burnaby there. Yeah. Could we have a minority government federally? This is the best possible outcome for Jagmeet Singh. Could he end up holding the balance of power in a minority government? I mean, this is the dream scenario for this guy right now. You know, and that would mean he's got to come back and try to win the NDP's traditional 35, 40 seats or something. If he can pull that off, it's minority government. Oh, man, he's in the driver's seat. I mean, it's a dream scenario on paper, but we know yeah. from watching Andrew Weaver do it here in British Columbia, it's also fraught with just pitfalls yeah. and landmines and yeah. just traps and everything all over the place. And traditionally, those parties that hold the balance of power with a small number of seats don't do very well. Then uh, It's not like they're governments in waiting. Yeah. They're just kind of momentary power brokers who then have to wrestle with whether they're going to get wiped off the face of this earth by all of the friends slash enemies that they have to deal with. So, But you're right, could be a fascinating uh, federal election. Yeah, Certainly, you know, sure. there's a lot of trends that we saw from this by-election. Back to BC politics, Smitty. Uh, you wrote an interesting column this week on the issue of school closures. Now, we have been talking about school closures for years in British Columbia as some districts deal with declining enrollment. Uh, it's a particular issue in rural communities where you have long bus wait, uh, bus rides uh, to get to rural schools. Uh, there's a funding formula issue involved in how the British Columbia government funds pupils, the per-pupil funding formula, uh, all sorts of issues there. But uh, in the news this week was the issue of the Vancouver School District and their long-term uh, capital planning and whether or not, I think it was a draft long-range facilities plan that comes out, and suddenly there's a whole bunch of names of schools on this list, and there's people concerned that they're going to be closed, and what is going to be happening here? Smitty, uh, you uh, picked up uh, Education Minister Rob Fleming in the hallway. Let's have a listen to what he said. I can say this. There is absolutely no pressure coming from the provincial government to close schools in Vancouver. It's not a precondition to make investments. We've invested a quarter billion dollars fixing up schools already in 18 short months, and we plan to do a lot more. Is, it, is there not a requirement from the province, though, to, that the, the school district has to demonstrate that they're optimizing their space? School districts have to give an inventory of their space, and we have that for each and every district. So yeah, Vancouver's no different. That, that's, that's not, not pressure. That's not pressure. That's just accounting for uh, what uh, the, not only the condition of your facilities, but what the utilization rates are. And Why I think I think the proof that? I think the proof is in the pudding. We've made a quarter billion dollars of investments <clears throat> in Vancouver seismic upgrade projects that the previous government wouldn't touch. Uh, we're interested in making kids safe in Vancouver. Period. That continues to be our priority. Yeah. So basically, what I was trying to get from. Fleming there is will these any schools close in Vancouver and what can he do about it and what kind of assurances can he give parents because if you remember back when the NDP were in opposition and Fleming was the NDP critic on the opposition side he was pitiless in going after the liberals for possible Vancouver school closures he just roasted them every mm -hmm. day on it and 
he really got a lot of traction on it and a lot of support from parents in Vancouver. He was a real champion for them. And the situation back then was, here's the situation in Vancouver. They've got declining enrollment. There's a lot of school districts in the province. The enrollment's actually going up, right? Yeah, yeah. But in Vancouver, they, they've still got this downward trend where they're actually losing kids. And they've got a lot of schools that are sitting partially empty. And a lot of them are old. A lot of them are in danger of falling down in an earthquake. They need to be seismically upgraded. So the question is, do you spend millions and millions of dollars on these incredibly expensive seismic upgrades on schools that have got a bunch of empty classrooms in them. And when the liberals were in power, they were quite plain that they wanted to see this, the utilization rates of these schools get up to like 95% before they would spend tons of money to fix them. And they got in a big fight with the school board over this and actually ended up firing a school board at the end. Fleming just ate their lunch over that. Like He was like, oh, you're ripping the heart out of neighborhoods by tr trying to force these schools to be closed. So now here we are. The tables have been turned. Fleming is the education minister now, the NDP are in power, and it's the same old story. Vancouver is now in the same situation they were before. They've got a bunch of schools that are not uh, 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 fully utilized with a lot of empty space. So do you shut these schools down? Now, what you heard him say on that clip there was, I'm not pressuring them to shut schools down. But what the province does do is they do require school districts to, to create an inventory of their buildings. And the buildings have to show the utilization rate. Now, he's saying, as you heard him say there, oh, it's not pressure, not pressure. You know, but the fact is that the school district is saying, we've got to make some tough choices here. And there could be a situation where some Vancouver schools do, ironically, do end up shutting down under this government's watch after he, you know, lit his hair on fire about it when he was in opposition. Yeah, I mean, the key issue here is that the provincial government requires school districts to show that they've optimized capacity in their schools before they get they drop that They drop that 95% right. target rate, right? Which but, was capacity. But they need, yeah. still need to show that they've optimized. Yeah. And the question for school districts is, well, how do we do that with partially full schools is that yeah. optimal can we still get the seismic money can we still and and despite the education minister saying that's not pressure it is in a well, form it effectively of pressure. is it effectively is saying yeah. you need to optimize before you come to us for money so it's a very difficult line for the new democrats to advance but i think the the larger issue here goes back to the school funding formula and our, the ndp were very critical of the per pupil funding formula and how it put school districts with declining enrollment in this death spiral of school closures, moving things around, parents are upset, you know, it, it, and then eventually um, it kicks back to the provincial government where they have to intervene and save some school somewhere because it's just a political nightmare. And the NDP were going to change that formula. They had recommendations. That's been punted now to some sort of working group to the fall of 2019, and there's not going to be any changes till 2020. Yeah, they'll kick it down the road. And right? it's a really difficult issue. You're discovering that the NDP are, are having problems figuring out how to fund districts with declining enrollment that prevents yeah. the situation that you raised with the education minister this year. It's not an easy fix. No. You can't throw cash at it every time parents get upset at a local school. you got to address the formula, and that's very complex. Well, it doesn't make any sense to spend millions of dollars to fix up a school if the school is not, you know, is half empty. Yeah. Now, there are arguments that you, know, you talk to parents advocates uh, for these schools that will say, you know, this is this is not fair because the school 
is actually fully utilized and the government won't recognize it because some of these empty classrooms, we've converted them into art rooms and, and that kind of thing or computer labs. And they might not be a full-time classroom, but the space is still being utilized, but the government doesn't count it as empty, right? So that's not fair. So I think that's a, you know, a reasonable argument and, and there's arguments back and forth ab- about it. But at the end of the day, you get to a very difficult decision about where are you going to spend these precious dollars to fix up schools? And does it make more sense to uh, consolidate some of the school space? Like, you know, shut down a, shut down one school. If you've got a nearby school that's underutilized, send the kids to that school. Now, obviously, you're going to have a fight with parents over it. And Fleming was clearly on the side of parents uh, when he was in opposition. Now I think he's finding out in government these things are not as easy. It's not as easy a nut to crack when you're the guy in power, right? Like it's, yeah. it's real easy to criticize from the opposition. It's a lot tougher when you got to make the tough choices yourself. Well, the liberals they put an ideological bent on this too, because you remember the last time the Vancouver uh, school district tried to close schools in 2016, they had 11 schools on the chopping block. The government that year intervened and said, "You're being so difficult. You're unwilling to work with us," and they fired the whole school right. board. Yeah, and. And the NDP don't have that same luxury because they're supposed to be the champions of restoring the school board and democracy, but they're finding that the school board's going to come back with the same, you know, unpalatable options. That's right. And it's the the same thing. The other dynamic that's interesting here is that we have the beginning of teacher negotiations with the government, and these type of school issues make it sound like, despite all the money that's been dumped into the education system, and you hear Rob Fleming say. Oh, well, we have record education funding. That great line that ministers always use when they increase the funding every year. It's the it's yeah. the biggest education funding in the history of B.C., but it's not really addressing the issue that there are still incredible problems in, in the way schools are funded here, and uh, the NDP have not found a way out of that, and the teachers are going to take advantage of this in their contract negotiations going on now. Yeah, and you got a teacher's union that are saying, like, look, we've got a friendly government in power here now, and it's payback time. Like, let's go. We feel like we've been underpaid for a long time. We had to go to war with the liberal government in court all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada to uh, restore our contract language. And now let's like let's it's time for us to get a raise. And the government is saying, well, no, we've got this two percent negotiating mandate, right? Where all the other public sector unions have negotiated these two, two, and two contracts, as they're called, three-year contracts, 2% raise each year. And there's pattern bargaining here. So if if the teachers get more than 2%, then every other union is supposed to get it too under a so-called Me Too clause in their contracts. So this is real tricky stuff. So I think uh, Fleming is going to be in some, uh, you know, difficult sort of political spots here in the in the months ahead. That's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, the NDP have to hold the line on the 2-2-2. Two, yeah. two two. I mean, Finance Minister Carol James has put a lot of her credibility behind that bargaining mandate. Yeah. But the most likely outcome of these negotiations seems to be you hold 2-2-2 two, 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 and you create a magic pot of money on the side. You call it Learning Improvement Fund 2 yeah, yeah. or Special Education Learning Fantastic Happy Fun Time Awesome Fund and you dump hundreds of millions of dollars into that. You let the TF control some of it. You use it for their priority items. You give benefits and wages, not called benefits and wages, kind of like they did with the nurses, bonuses and recruitment bonuses. And then you don't have the Me Too clauses kick in for all the other units. But it's going to be a slog for the TF to get there. Like they a strike? To be there a strike? I, I don't know. We We... I remember our New Year's uh, prediction show where I said no strike, but they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna get as far as administrative action where you know we're not gonna do recesses, we're not gonna do report cards, and, yeah. and that's probably the first uh, the first step you might see, and you probably wouldn't see that till maybe the fall 
of this year. But yeah. it's a it's an ongoing file. Speaking of ongoing files, this is what the 472nd consecutive podcast we've discussed the speaker spending scandal here ah, at yes. the legislature. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this never ends. But by the time we'd recorded last week's podcast, we had not seen the. Uh, I don't know which, what number to call this now, I guess, second speaker's report into the spending issues involving the suspended clerk and sergeant-at-arms. So we had a big meeting of the all-party legislative uh, management committee, we call it LAMSI, last Thursday. Uh, they got together and they tried to figure this out. And uh, we're going to play a clip here from Mike Farmworth, the government house leader, who is explaining what they came to, which was basically hiring a retired judge to come in here, take a look at the suspended clerk and sergeant-at-arms spending allegations from the speaker, try to make some sense of it, put an independent lens on it, and go forward. And the question was, okay, well, is, is, that, is that the path we're taking? Uh, and here's what Mike Farmworth had to say. Because I think all three of us, all three parties on that table, take this issue very seriously. We take the institution very seriously. And, uh, you know, we work together to come up with uh, a way forward uh, along with the speaker. And uh, we think that, uh, that uh, we've, we've got the right, the, right, the, right, the right approach and the right path. And, you know, I know everyone likes to think that we're always at each other's throats. But the reality is, is that uh, we, we have to come together on this issue. This institution demands that. Uh, the public demands that. And I can't tell you, you know, we worked really hard. Uh, three of us, three parties on that table uh, to, uh, to get to where we are today. Is that it for reports from the speaker? You let him put out one more? I'm, I'm not expecting at this point uh, any, any reports from the speaker. We have got a process in place and, I'm, uh, and we're looking forward to, to, to getting this underway. Is this sort of a rate of reply for him after the uh, lens gains? Uh, Response. I think what this is is a recognition that uh, we want to get uh, this issue resolved and we believe that this is the best way to do that. It has the support of the speaker, it has the support of the official opposition, it has the support of the third party, it has the support of the governing party and that, uh, uh, you know, we're going forward. So Smitty, you hear him, uh, Vaughn Palmer, our colleague there, is asking a question. Is that it for reports from the speaker? Uh, and you've, <laughs> you've let him do this one more report, which is his reply to the reply from the suspended clerk and sergeant-at-arms who were replying to his original report. So follow that trail down the rabbit hole. And the, the response was, yeah, that's it. You know, we've got this judge in here. They're going to take it from then. And not one day goes by before Speaker Plekis's chief of staff, Alan Mullen, convenes his own press conference and says, you know, gosh darn it. We're going to keep producing these reports because the people want us to produce them. We only recused ourselves for this judge on one very specific issue. The larger issues here at the legislature, report bonanza continues. I don't know what to make of all of that, Smitty. What do you, what do you make of where we stand now? Well, I think maybe the reason they're bringing in a retired judge to take a look at this is they're trying to figure out, is there a way we can fire these guys? Because Craig yeah. James and Gary Lenz are currently on suspension with pay, and they both get paid a lot of money. Craig James makes, what, $350,000 a year. This is an astronomical amount of money for a clerk. I think he's the highest paid clerk of any legislature in Canada. Yep. And he's at home, and he's still collecting that, that money. Now, to be fair to these guys, they both say they've done nothing wrong. They, they have not been charged with anything. Nothing's been proven in court. They both say they want their jobs back. And I guess we'll 
you know, at some at some point in the future, I guess this will it'll all be settled. But in the meantime, I think there's some people saying, well, wait a sec. There's a lot of there's a lot of what we consider to be inappropriate spending in these reports that the clerk has put out. Why are we still paying these guys? So I think maybe the reason the judge is brought in is can that provide them with some legal cover if they decide, and I stress if they decide, that these guys should be uh, fired, let go, and that they would have a judge maybe recommend that. So I think that's what's going on. As for the um, further reports, I mean, you got two guys here. You got Plekis, the speaker, and then you got his sidekick, Alan Mullen, right? And Mullen is the guy who does a lot of the talking, as we call them now around the building, the Mullen moments. When we have another (laughs) Mullen moment, and he comes out and says, oh, no, wait a minute. We're still kicking butt here, and we're going to keep putting these reports out. He says that uh, one of the things they're looking at now are these whistleblowers that he says have come forward, because Plekis made it clear that if there's anyone who worked in the legislature, either they work here now or they work here in the past, and they've got something they want to tell him, that he has an open-door policy, come and speak to me confidentially. And they say nearly 30 people have done that, these whistleblowers. And they say they're they're working on another report on that. Mm-hmm. They've now, got, apparently got sworn affidavits from them. Wow. I mean, you know, I mean, that could be another bombshell. Remember what Mullen said? This guy is amazing with his quotes. The first report was the hand grenade. Right. <laughs> And he said the big bomb is coming later, you know. So the problem for MLAs it's not going to stop. The problem for MLAs though is that they authorized an independent workplace review. And one of the questions that is circulating amongst MLAs now, I guess, is is what legal liability is on the legislature to allow the speaker, who has clearly addressed publicly that he wants these two gentlemen fired, to continue to produce reports? Because they can't be viewed at a certain point as being unbiased. When he's already said out loud, I think these two guys should be gone. And let's play a clip from Daryl Plekis here where he gets asked that question in the hall right after the, the meeting on Thursday. You said you're confident where this will end, and where, where will it end? Well, I don't think there's any, uh, there's any debate or should be any questions about my thinking on this. I've said very early on. Uh, of course, that I believe that the two people uh, who are under investigation shouldn't be here. I, I, I think I've been very clear in that in my, my first uh, report, and I think you'll find by what I've had to say in the second report, I don't think I could have made that any clearer. So he says, Smitty, you know, I don't think these two guys should be here. Right. It's been clear from the beginning on my mind. And I guess the problem that the legislature has is if it's if the guy investigating them is clear that they should be fired, then what kind of reports are being produced afterwards? And Lamsey, the MLAs have hired probably the best uh, labor lawyer in the province, uh, Marcia McNeil, yes. who was involved in the health firings uh, uh, issue for the government that fired health researchers from a few years ago. Probably is, one of the most respected labor lawyers in BC. And she's giving them advice, and that advice is make this independent, make it uh, non-biased, and and get it out of the hands of all the MLAs here who have partisan axes to grind. And the Speaker doesn't seem to want to let it go, partly because he is scoring tons of points in the, the court of public opinion, yeah. uh, him and, and Mr. Mullen, on as these crusading, taxpayer-money-saving, dynamic duo heroes. And the le- But when you think about this, 
how much money are we talking about possibly uh, inappropriately spent in some of these reports that you could definitively at this point say are are serious, you know, receipt-backed allegations? Thousands, a few thousands, a few tens of thousands? If we get to the point of, of a lawsuit here, we're talking a multi-million dollar lawsuit against the Legislative Assembly, and those are your tax dollars as well. So at some point, MLAs are weighing the process, the liability, the fairness, and everything, and they're coming to these conclusions of let's take this outside. And the speaker is, seems to be saying, "I'm gonna, I, you know, I want to keep it going." Well, Plekis has already indicated or demonstrated that he doesn't really take advice. He, or, or I guess he will listen to advice, but he doesn't necessarily take it. He marches to his own drummer. And remember when they brought in Wally Opal, the former Attorney General, as an advisor, and Opal's advice was shut up and stop talking. Stop doing these news conferences. Uh, you know, stop releasing the reports like this. He didn't take any of that advice. He no. just said, no, I'm going to keep talking. I'm going to keep issuing reports. And, you know, I don't, I don't see how that's necessarily going to stop. I mean, they say they're bringing in an ex-judge, but this is a guy who, who feels like he's got a tiger by the tail and uh, he's going to clean, clean this place up. And I would say, to his credit... He has achieved quite a bit, you know, and we've talked about this in past past podcasts as well about how they're, the ball's already rolling here to clean the place up or they're going to change the FOI Act and they're going to yeah. uh, bring in, uh, you know, enhanced legislation and transpar- to make this place more transparent and open and honest. And that's down to Plekis and what he's achieved here. But on the other hand, there's also been some commentary from uh, from uh, legal, from lawyers who are commenting publicly in B- BC saying, like, what about the due process here? This is very unusual, the way this whole thing has been handled. And could these guys, uh, if, if it does get in front of a judge at some point, or, or, or could there be a wrongful dismissal suit, something like that down the road, could they argue that uh, th- there was no due process here, um, they weren't told the allegations against them, they weren't treated fairly, and they might have an argument there. Yeah, they got a chance to respond, and then the speaker got a chance to put the last word in with his response. Yeah. But to pick up on your point there, I think you are right. There's, there are things that have been highlighted by Speaker Plekis, which are outrageous, long-standing issues yes. in this legislature. And a couple that come up in his second report are these ridiculous travel junkets that all MLAs in this building have participated in at some point to Sri Lanka and all the warm Commonwealth nations. And there's a couple highlighted in here that was a staff junket uh, for an earthquake preparedness trip, which turned out to be a whale watching trip that cost $1,000 and a uh, seminar on large scale evacuations, which was a Seattle Mariners game that cost another $1,000. And those kind of things you do think, well, it's about time that someone here blew the whistle on ridiculous junkets that have been used. But it doesn't just end at the staff. I mean, MLAs, the speaker says in his report, these are de facto vacations. Well, MLAs have used them as de facto vacations for a long time. Going to talk about uh, Commonwealth parliamentary democracy best practices in South Africa? Like, come on. But, I mean, it is only to the public's benefit that those things will stop because they were wastes of taxpayer money and they've been abused uh, by everyone for many, many years. But I said last time when we were talking about the original Plekis report, I split it into thirds. There's a third that's kind of backed up with receipts, seems ironclad. A third you need to ask more questions about. And a third that is kind of partisan axe grinding by, you know, a speaker who hates the Liberal Party and they seem to hate him. And his response, I split the same way. You know, you have a third of this stuff, like those trips I just mentioned, which are 
basically ridiculous, and, and they seem to not even be uh, properly documented and justified. You have a third where we're still talking about stuff we don't even know, like truckloads of alcohol. Two truckloads of alcohol, no first-hand witnesses, denial, and now we've got $370 check from speaker, former Speaker Bill Beresoff, who supposedly received some of this alcohol. How much? Who knows? I don't even know what to make of that at this point because it's it's who we don't even have evidence of what was in the truck or or how many trucks or who was there or what. So questions on that, and then you've got a whole third of the report, which I would say was kind of a um, Plekis saying, you're a liar. No, 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 you can't say that about me. You're a liar, and you're a liar. And there was a, there was a very defensive part of the report as well. But it's a, such a complicated file because some of these expenses are outrageous. And yep, built right. upon the justifiably outrageous stuff is the world of politics at the legislature and all the score settling and all, and you know, I mean, the public outrage. If this... You get the sense sometimes from the public they want to drag these two guys out and stone them to death in the town square. I mean, that's kind of the mob reaction to a lot of this stuff. And it becomes a big mess that shows no signs of slowing down. No, it'll keep going. And I'm sure this is probably not the last podcast we'll be t- where we'll discuss it. 478 and <laughs> yeah, counting. It's going to be it's going to be really good. But let's move on to one other thing here. Okay. Where we got the time. Measles. Now I hope you've yeah. been vaccinated because this yes. this was a closed door room <laughs> and we're very close to each other. But uh, let's listen to a clip here from Question Period this week on the issue of measles, and it is notable only for the fact it's a longer clip, so you know bear with us. But for the fact it was a different kind of Question Period. And you get a different tone from this. So, so have a listen. Leader, the official opposition on a sec- third supplemental. Second and just to clarify with the Minister of Health, given that the MMR vaccine is cheap, effective, and safe, and given that there are about 5 million of us in British Columbia, and given that about half of us know that we've had it and the other half don't know or perhaps possibly haven't had it, can we make it more readily available so that any licensed practitioner, pharmacist, nurse practitioner, physician, nurse, public health nurse, could be prepared and armed to have this. The obvious thing to do is to put up a sign in front of every pharmacy in British Columbia saying, if you were in any of the following locations you may have been exposed, come on in and get a free immunization. Is the minister prepared to take that retail level action so that parents can be reassured and have the option to be sure that their child has had the MMR? Minister of Health. Well, as the member knows, of course, with respect to retail pharmacies, uh, right now the rules are uh, that uh, that uh, pharmacists can deliver the vaccine over the age of five, and there's some reasons for that to work through. But I think for that's a huge category of people who uh, can access va- vaccines through pharmacy. Generally speaking, with MMR, the MMR vaccine, which is measles, mumps, and rubella, that you get it the first shot added around the age of one, and then the booster shot between the ages of four and six. So what is critical for our public health system as well, and this is where issues around lack of access to nurse practitioners and family doctors are important, we, we found, and we just announced, for example, in the, in the Tri-City in U.S. Minster, a primary care network which will expand access to primary care, and what we found was one of the areas where people were lacking care was in pre- and postnatal care in that area. And having access to a family doctor is critical. So that part of it as well, the, the support for basic health of British Columbians is, I think, an important part of this. There are things we can do now. There are specific urgent actions we can take now. 
I agree with the honorable member. As well, we have to make the structural changes in systems to ensure that children's health is better, and that includes access to family doctors, access to nurse practitioners, access to basic health care, basic primary health care. There's more than three-quarters of a million people in British Columbia right now without a family practice doctor attached to a family doc practice doctor or nurse practitioner, and that number is too high. And so whenever an issue like this emerges, you see the impact of that in society. So we have to make improvements there, and we are. Leader, third party. Uh, thank you, Honourable Speaker, and please let me start by thanking members of opposition and the Minister for canvassing such an important issue and, and having the dialogue that led to some very informative answers that we can take back to our constituency. So I, I thank you for the, for the questioning there. Rob, wake up. Oh, go, Rob, go. Wake up. oh my God. How do you stay awake in question You period? nodded off there, Rob. Oh, how do you stay awake when people aren't yelling at each other and calling them names? It's, uh, I mean, but in all seriousness, that was actually a good example of, of a question period that I thought was very respectful. You took an issue of a public yeah. health emergency. You have the Liberals asking kind of fact-based quest, fact questions like, can we get posters for our constituency offices? Is there anything else that we can do? What about mobile units to vaccinate kids? And you have the health minister responding with, those are good suggestions. We're looking at them. You know, and then you have the Greens coming in and saying, thanking everyone for being so respectful about it. I mean, I know it's boring in a sense, but it, it, also, it also is it theoretically how this place could work in some situations where we all get together and discuss an issue and no one's screaming at each other or calling each other names. So it took 13 cases of measles to bring everybody <laughs> together here. So that's, that's all it took. And But it is, you know, the, the government is wrestling with this. Uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix is talking about a school registry now for the fall uh, where you would have to indicate to your uh, your school uh, administrators whether your children have been vaccinated there's problems in British Columbia how do you discover if you're vaccinated where are the records these old paper yeah. records yeah. you know we need to modernize that and then there's Ontario which has made it a law that you need to be vaccinated unless you can get an exemption for religious or medical reasons and we're not moving that far in British Columbia but it's it's nice to see the politicians well, get together to talk about it. Dix has been, you know, listening to Dix describe how this registry is going to work in BC, there's a lot of questions here about how this is going to operate. Now, he has said it'll be similar to what Ontario's done, and Ontario's got the toughest law in the land here. There's no province in Canada that forces people to be vaccinated or you can't go to a public school because the, the legal opinion on it is you can't do that under the constitution of the country. What Ontario has done, though, is they've said, you must have your kid vaccinated. And if, you sh if your kid shows up and you can't prove they've been vaccinated, we can send you home. Now, there is a loophole. You can uh, apply for one of these a medical or, like you said, a religious or philosophical objection to your kid being vaccinated. And you got to jump through a whole bunch of hoops in order to achieve that. You have to fill out a bunch of forms. You have to get it notarized by a lawyer or a public official. And then you have to go through a 30-minute uh, session, public in, uh, information session, with a public health officer who will then tell you why it's not a good idea to not vaccinate your child. Yeah. So they've made it very difficult and a, and a, and a, and a lot of hassle and, and steps and time that you have to take if you are absolutely determined not to vaccinate your kid. And we'll see if what... Dix brings in here, which they're going to do by, he told me they want to do it by regulation, by the way, probably would not require legislation in front of the legislature. So he wants to get this done quickly. 
Uh, we'll see if it's that tough. I think they should go as tough as possible, in my opinion. So I think we should match what they've done in Ontario. I think Ontario's got the toughest law. I think we should bring in a tough law here, too. It's, we'll an op- it's an opportunity with everyone talking about it, everyone concerned about it, to go as tough as you can. Because yeah. once, once this disappears again... Um, people are going to be like, well, I don't really care about measles, you know. But when you have the opportunity, take it as far as you can to make sure that immunization is done, tracked, people are checked, you know, so that we don't have another outburst in the uh, outbreak in the future so I agree. it's a very interesting question period debate another fascinating week in bc politics it's, it's um, hard to imagine last week was the budget it moved so quickly here we didn't even talk about the budget <laughs> no, this week but uh but i'm sure there'll be other topics next week make sure you subscribe to the podcast on apple podcasts or follow us on twitter read us in the sun and the province and uh, stay up to date on all your political news we'll talk to you next week